Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond push-to-talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the podcast show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, we have a really important episode for you today. It's the 19 years since the terrorist attacks on 9-11. I'm looking at the American flag right now in our studio and just thinking about really what that means and uh, what it means for emergency management. We have Mike Lavasar with us today. I, I can't I can't really think of anything... Um, Better to say about him besides the fact that he is a uh, highly respected emergency manager. He's out here in California now. He was uh, in the military for 20 years. In fact, he signed up before 9-11. He signed up in 1997, did a 20-year career there in the Army. Um, and at the same time, he was a firefighter and a paramedic. So he has three careers uh, essentially wrapped up in one uh, over a 20-year period. Again, 20 years in the, in the Army, 20 years with a firefighter, and uh, 20 years as a paramedic. I mean, the guy is just um, massively experienced and uh, multiple degrees in emergency management. So he can talk about it from the first responder side, from the academic side, from the research side. Um, as uh, a strategic planner, he has all all levels of emergency management from tactical, operational, and now, of course, strategic. Again, highly respected. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Great to be here. Great to see you. Great to see you're doing well. Uh, congratulations on all the success that you're having out here. Uh, and I am uh, I'm truly honored to be able to uh, to come and uh, tell a couple stories tonight. Um, in honor of our uh, our brothers and sisters that uh, that have paid the ultimate price for uh, the freedom that we enjoy. Yeah, whether um, whether that sacrifice was paid or not, uh, we truly support all of our service members and are grateful for their work and also for um, first responders who literally run into fires. And uh, we can't thank you enough. Really, the honor is ours for for having you on here and to talk about you know, emergency management from the perspective of 9-11 and from your stories and, um, you know, what was it like and um, how to move forward. And so, uh, you know, today being the anniversary of the 2001 9-11 terrorist attacks, we really want to show our listeners that, uh, you know, we will never forget by interviewing veteran turned firefighter paramedic turned leader in emergency management and really being on the front lines, the tactical, the operational, and now the strategic level of emergency management for over two decades. 
And so before we even get into to all of that, um, you know, packaging, unpackaging, all of that, uh, the first question with 9-11 always has to be the same, right? You know, where were you when it happened and what was it like for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, like like most Americans uh, that, that, you know, were, were around at that time, you know, remembering that it was 19 years ago now, we have an entire generation of children that were born after 9-11 and are now adults and they, they don't even remember it. Uh, I was already in the Army at that point. I'd be in the Army for about four years at that point. Um, I was also a firefighter and I was working as an EMT basic, uh, which is the step before you go to become a paramedic. Um, and I was, I was deployed to Bosnia. I was in, uh, I had been in Bosnia since about February of 2001. And, uh, we were actually at the end of our tour. We had been there for six, uh, ish months and we were getting ready to come home. We had all of our stuff packed and we were getting ready for our relief to show up and, uh, switch out with them and come back. And uh, I was uh, assigned to, I was, a, I'm a medic in the army. I was a medic in the army. Uh, and I was uh, assigned to the uh, 28th Combat Support Hospital, which is normally based in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, working in the emergency room of the hospital there in uh, Eagle Base, which is in Tuzla, a uh, city in northeastern Bosnia. And uh, one, one Tuesday afternoon, so it's, uh, I realized that it occurred in the morning here, but uh, in, in Eastern Europe, it's uh, six hours ahead. So it was 2.45 in the afternoon, mid-afternoon that day. And um, somebody came and said, you've got to see this. The World Trade Center is on fire. And I said, you know, I'm from Connecticut. I lived there my entire life before moving out here to California. And I, it, 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 I stopped for a second. I said, that can't be. It doesn't make any sense. This is a major skyscraper in New York City. It's a tourist attraction. There's no conceivable reason that this building would catch fire for any reason. Um, <clears throat> so we we walk out to where the TV is because you know there's one TV in the whole in the whole uh, building, and it's playing the American Forces Network or AFN for those of uh, those who are so indoctrinated. Uh, even even back in 2001, it had live news on. Uh, that was one of the one of the few channels that it offered. So we walk out there, and the, the, sure enough, there's a huge column of smoke coming out of the North Tower. And I said to myself, you know what? And then they started talking about, well, they say maybe a plane hit it. And I'm like, that that can't be. All right. Uh, it never occurred to me that, a, it never occurred to anybody that a, a an airliner, let alone two, would deliberately fly into a into a tower like that. And, um, you know, we had been watching the, the footage for a couple of minutes when we saw the, an explosion happen in the second building. And at first, everybody said, oh, my God, it was a bomb. This is definitely terrorism, right? And then they adjusted the camera a little bit and replayed it. And you could see where the plane flew into the second building. And from that moment on till this very, till this very day, we have been in a state of war. And uh, we, we knew it immediately, you know, and we, we sat there and watched in, in disbelief for about an hour. So, and, uh, you know, we, we came home uh, from Bosnia uh, three weeks later to a country that was completely different. Uh, my, my job as a, uh, as a paramedic and as a firefighter and, and as a soldier was, uh, uh, was never the same. I, uh, you know, I, I, I've since done uh, two more tours in combat. I was in Iraq in 2004 in the first part of 05. And then I was home for about eight months uh, in 2005, 
did a month in New Orleans, responded to Katrina. We can talk about that in a little while if you like. Yeah. It does bear on the, it does bear on the story. Um, and then in 2006 and 2007, I was in Afghanistan, uh, and then, you know, came home and, uh, uh, did the rest of my service in the army stateside, uh, and retired as a first sergeant in 2017. Uh, I continued as a firefighter and paramedic, uh, for, uh, about the same amount of time. I retired in 2018 from both of those two jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I reached, it wasn't, wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a bad split or anything. I uh, reached 20 years in all three of those disciplines and decided uh, that I wanted to uh, explore the uh, the emergency management side of things. As you know, uh, during that time, I went and got a uh, bachelor's degree in emergency and disaster management from uh, American Military University. Um, and then I got a, got a master's degree in, in EDM from Georgetown with you. There, There's so much to unpack just like within that, like, um, like holy crap! First of all, um, I don't I don't know if goosebumps is the right word for it, but as you're talking about this event and like me remembering as well, um, uh, this is gonna date me in a in a different way than dating you. But I was actually walking into eighth grade, uh, <laughs> eighth grade gym, and um, our teacher, I'm from Ohio, and our teacher, our gym uh-huh. teacher, she had a, a TV screen up and it was playing. And uh, she goes, uh, a plane hit the trade towers. And I was like, oh, man, I, I had no idea what the, a trade tower was. I, you know, I was in eighth grade. And so sure. and she's playing this. And I'm like, oh, is this a movie? I still remember asking her that. She goes, no, this is actually happening. And um, right after that, we saw the second plane hit. That, that moment. Yep. And then right after that. Um, I'll never forget watching somebody fall out of, um, you know, out of one of the, the highest, um, uh, highest floors. And, yeah. you know, that realize I mean, talk about grow up moment. Um, you know, I, I had actually gotten to gym class a little early because of, um, uh, because of a, a weird lunch period or something. And so I was in there alone with her for maybe five, 10 minutes before the kids start coming in and they had no idea. And so they were allowed to, you know, obnoxious, like we, you know, we all are, but, um, you know, it got, it got somber for us real, real fast. And then, um, there was no planes allowed to fly. Right. And right. I remember around five, yeah, they shut everything down. Yeah. I remember around 5 PM, uh, seeing, um, the three jets and then, the the, uh, the, um, you know, 747 carrying the president fly overhead and uh, yep. everybody on my street came out and watched, you know, the single plane. It was eerie, eerie silent. And um, so, like, just bringing all that back, I mean, even when I was thinking about this episode, I wasn't really thinking about that emotionally. But, I mean, talking about impacting everything on. And so, even though I want to impact everything else, I, I first want to ask, were you planning on staying in the military for that long or... That is a that is a question that people frequently ask, and the answer is I have no idea, because <laughs> um, I was I was midway through my second enlistment. I my my first enlistment had been uh, for three years, mm. and I was I loved it. I absolutely loved every second of it um, at the time, and uh, and then nine eleven happened, 
And I still had uh, four more years to go on my second enlistment. So that took me through uh, to almost to the end of my time in Afghanistan. I, so I, in, that, in that six years, I re-enlisted in 2000 mm. uh, after, I, after I originally joined in 1997. And by the time I was done with that six-year enlistment, I had done three tours in combat, uh, two deployments to uh, like storms, disasters, yeah. and then one to the Salt Lake City Olympics of all places, which was right after 9-11. It was not even six months later. Uh, the, you know, the, the government decided, Hey, the, the, the Olympics are a target. We need to get the military there. And, uh, they put out a call for volunteers and I stood up and said, I'll go. That's um, awesome. But it was, that was a, that was a great, that was a great time. I got to, uh, uh, we, we, we kept the Olympics safe and, uh, uh, got to, got to participate in, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the Olympics, it's amazing. I have these, uh, these Olympic pins that people collect and, uh, I get to ski on the same mountains that the that you see in the in the on TV and all that. It was great. It was amazing. I think within the first five minutes of recording this, uh, all my listeners are going to be start emailing me or you know on Instagram, whatever, and saying, "Hey, get this guy back on here because you already have so many stories <laughs> that we're going to want to be talking about." Uh, so that's just that's just, that's just wild to think about, like you know, career possibly career changing. Anyway, to to fully answer the question, yeah, um, I've. You know, I've always been a big believer that the uh, the army doesn't owe you anything, and that's 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 what they tell you on day one of basic training. It's like you know, yeah. the, the army doesn't owe you anything, the country doesn't owe you anything. Uh, the price the price for this is your freedom, and I've always believed that. So I don't know, and I was having a blast. I loved the army. I loved every second. Of it. <laughs> I don't awesome. know if I would have stayed or not because if nine eleven had never happened and I didn't get to do all these things. And I didn't have these stories. Yeah. How long would I have stuck with it? I can't answer that question with any any kind of uh, accuracy. I really don't know. I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah, but uh, again, serving your country for that long and loving your yeah. service, I, I agree 100%. Going back to like 9-11, you know, mm -hmm. from, from also from the, you know, Army perspective, but now also the firefighter perspective, you know, walk us through some of that timeline of the events that happened to 9-11, you're right. We have a lot of people who don't really know what happened or were very young. Um, I was doing an active shooter course uh, back in, I mean, it was January, right before the pandemic. And I was trying to um, talk about terrorism and how that impacts, you know, somebody asked a question about terrorism. So I was trying to like talk about the events uh, since 9-11. And there was a couple blank stares of like, I just don't even know what it was right. beforehand. So what what was it like? And, you know, what were some of those major events that happened on 9-11? Obviously, we know about the towers. To, to, speak, to speak of it from a, from a perspective of a firefighter, um, I, I've been a firefighter since about 1997, right around the same time I joined the Army. I was a senior in high school at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was a senior in high school when I joined the army. My, my mother literally had to sign me over to the army so, I could, awesome. so I could enlist. Um, and uh, so I'm from the East Coast, from Connecticut. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a town with a, it's, it's a, it's a volunteer fire department, right? So um, you're responding from home and, uh, you know, you go on calls, fires, car accidents and all sorts of other stuff. But it's it's busy enough that you can't imagine that it would ever be volunteer. It's the type of place where you're going on calls all day long, every day. Like you could basically go and 
not not ever leave the firehouse and you just go from one call to the next yeah. if, if you wanted to. Uh, my career, my paid job was at, was in EMS, in emergency medical services in the same area of Connecticut. Um, and that's where I, you know, made the money to keep the lights on. Um, but plenty of experience in, uh, in both, in both places. Um, it, it changed, it really changed everything about the fire service. It really did because it, it pushed us more into the public consciousness than we had ever been. Um, it, you know, before nine 11, the fire department was, uh, you, you know, we'll come and put your house out if you burn your house down, or we'll pull you out of your wrecked car. If you, you know, you crash into a pole or something, but it didn't have the public consciousness that it did afterwards. The same thing with the emergency medical services. You know, you're going on calls day in and day out. It's a job. It's there's there's a lot of tedious work involved. My experience with the fire service is no different, except that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we had, I, I can't even tell you how many times we had to go and sit uh, and babysit the hazmat team while they checked out a white powder scare. All right. And this is like pe people would call and say, I found this white powder in a box of garbage bags that I just unwrapped. It's, you know, perfectly sealed box, brand new. And there's white powder in there. I'm afraid that the terrorists are trying to kill me. And we had to respond to everything, every single one of these, because if you recall, that anthrax attack happened right after 9-11. And it, it showed up in people's mail and, uh, you know, a couple of other uh, avenues of, uh, of delivery. And people did get hurt. There were there were people that got hurt in Connecticut by that. So there was a lot of lot of fear. That's, I guess that's the underlying statement. A lot of lot of fear. Well, the 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 firefighter. You know, my argument for uh, firefighters and for emergency management, any kind of emergency related job, where ninety percent of the time either you're planning and you're training, and it's pretty boring uh, from an outside perspective. Uh, is because of that one to 10% of the time, it is so extreme and so taxing and the decisions that, that have to be made, uh, you know, are truly life-saving, life-sustaining missions. Um, even for an emergency manager who is working on uh, temporary housing, when you have hundreds of thousands of people uh, evacuating a city, where do they go? Um, you're talking about sustainability here and breakdowns in systems or in people if they can't find places to live. Uh, and so uh, I think the pay is justified. In fact, I think they should be paid a lot more um, for the work, you know, especially volunteer firefighters. Come on, get, get these guys paid. The fire department that I, that I volunteered in was established before the Civil War. You know, it, wow. it goes back to 1855. So, um, there, a lot of the history and the traditions, I mean, you go to the walls, you, you go to the firehouse that I was assigned to, you look on the walls, there's charters from the 1800s in there Jeez. from when those, from when the fire companies were established. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, and, and, and all of, all of the East coast is like that. And New York city included those, that fire department goes back to the, you know, the 1600s, you know? So that's, I'm glad you brought uh, New York up. Because you and I, we we obviously had different perspectives. I worked a lot with firefighters when I did tactical level uh, emergency management kind of stuff. And a lot of homes, wildfires, that kind of stuff. And even when I became a Fed, uh, working closely with the fire guys. But you and actually as a firefighter. And then both of our experiences at Georgetown, um, we've had a few people now here on Georgetown, but your experience is going to be unique in the fact that you know, as much as we've studied about 
a lot of the lessons learned came through communication systems between fire and police. Yep. And that's a, that's a situation that's you, that is unique to, to New York city. It's the, it's not unique in, in the fact that, or in the sense that police and fire don't generally share the same communications frequencies and they don't have the channels programmed in the radios. That was a problem where, where I worked, uh, in, in every aspect of my job on both fire and EMS. Um, if I wanted to get a hold of someone in particular, like if I'm on scene with a police officer, uh, I can't just switch my channel over on the radio and talk to them. Um, it, it was magnified on 9-11 because it was identified afterwards as a gap, right? Yeah. Um, the that, no one in their right mind would have ever believed that two planes would crash into the, the World Trade Center towers and then the Pentagon, and then into a field in Pennsylvania, owned, by the way, which was only because of the heroism of the passengers, that plane could have very easily continued on its course to D.C. and crash into the Capitol or the White House. Absolutely, okay? yeah. Uh, that was an absolute miracle. We could have lost our entire government that day. Because it's our job to always improve as emergency managers, if somebody's in fire or police right now, because we have a lot of those guys listening on, we also have a lot of people who are in the military and are thinking about getting into EM. I've got a lot of messages on that. So shout out to those guys and girls. Um, but what would be your, I don't know, after actions or your lessons learned from, from your perspective, especially as you've studied the, as, as you've looked at the actual research behind it um, to say, Hey, make sure you do this. I mean, what communications is an obvious one, um, even though it's complicated to actually implement, what would be some of those lessons learned for you? Oh geez, that's a that is a can of worms. Yeah. Um, there's, I'd say probably first and foremost is that um, communication has a, a lot of layers, and uh, you know you, we we talked about uh, when I asked how far back you want to go and talk about the history with with nine eleven and all that. Uh, our our interaction with Osama bin Laden goes back to the eighties uh, in the. Uh, in the Afghanistan-Soviet war. They then go back to Saudi Arabia. Then guess what? Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. Now you have uh, now you have our situation where we're putting soldiers, American soldiers, in Saudi Arabia. And that was where we lost bin Laden. And then it goes through to um, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. All right, Ramzi Youssef. All right, he's a member of Al-Qaeda. I mean, they were calling it Al-Qaeda at the time, but Osama bin Laden funded that. Then you have the embassy bombings in 98. You had a whole bunch of activity in Sudan in that right around that time frame. Uh, and then uh, the USS Cole bombing in 2000. And, and then leading up to, well, and then also uh, there was a, uh, a failed attempt uh, uh, to hijack some planes in, in Eastern Asia. Um, that, and if you, if you watch a show, it's on, uh, there's, a, there's a mini series on Showtime called The Looming Tower. Cannot recommend strongly enough. These are history lessons, by the way. You take you take Charlie Wilson's war and you add the looming tower and you've got 9-11. You know, that's that is bare bones how it happened. So communication, the fact that the FBI and the CIA did not communicate one another, they were both watching different cells, different different uh, splinter groups of Al Qaeda. And they weren't talking to each other. And if they had, they would have they would have caught it. There's been so much change to how people I mean, there's even 
we don't need to even get into the politics about trust or not trust, but I mean, the fact that there's now security councils inside the U.S. where they communicate terrorist activity. I mean, hey, big big up for uh, Saudi Arabia because he started doing some pretty shady stuff, um, despite the U.S. being there or not. And um, as soon as Saudi Arabia got wind of that, they cut him off. They... uh, didn't allow him. And so they were actually going to arrest him. And, uh, uh, he escaped the country because he had, um, connections inside. Yeah. That, and he's, uh, he comes from a family that's worth somewhere in the neighborhood of like $50 billion. You know, the guy can literally buy whatever he wants. You know, it's, the, he's just a the, fact, the fact that they, the fact that they evicted him from Saudi Arabia changed nothing. He still had all that money. Yeah. So, and, uh, good riddance. Yeah. No issues there. <laughs> Yeah, I think what's most important is that like we walk away from 9/11. One uh one lesson learned is that for me was how united our country was and uh, when things get hard, when things get actually hard, uh we need to rely on each other and and help each other out. And then the the next thing um I think that's like really critical that you were talking about is um you know, surveying what has happened and as similar events start to populate we need to communicate uh, between different sectors to to make sure that it's stopped in its tracks yeah i could not agree with you more it's one of the things that i one of the things that i took stock of when i got back from bosnia you know all those years ago was every american household had an american flag on 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 their doorstep uh every uh american was chanting USA, USA, USA. And we need to go back to what I, what I always call September 12th, the day after 9-11. Yeah, we, we lost 3,000 plus of our, of our citizens. We lost 343 firefighters, 50-something cops, and how many American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines since then, thousands killed in combat, 100,000 wounded, right, conservatively. When when I talk, when I think about September 12th, I like that idea, September 12th. Let's be September 12th. I think the slogan should be, let's be September 12th without September 11. And um, yeah. I'm going to coin that. I've been coining slogans lately. Uh, that's mine. <laughs> I've had a, a very special relationship with uh, – with several firehouses in uh, in Lower Manhattan, and uh, and one in particular. So this the story. It's a it's a fairly decent story. Um, we're we're in upstate New York, uh, training to go to Iraq. This is in like the winter of two thousand and three into two thousand and four. And yeah, yeah, get that. They said to, in order to train us for the desert, they sent us to the Arctic because it was <laughs> literally it's literally forty degrees below zero outside, and we're you know shivering in next to the fire. And uh, one day, and the, the doorstep of the barracks opens up, you know, shows up this box, and it's addressed to any soldier. It's a care package of some kind. We open it up, and it's full of, uh, full of firehouse T-shirts. Now, for those of us that are on the job that are firefighters or paramedics or police officers, one of the things that a lot of uh, companies do, regardless of where you are, this is as true here in California as it is in the East Coast, is they'll, they'll have uh, – T-shirts made with the company logo or whatever, and uh, you know they they sell it as they sell them as a fundraiser. You know they 
it, it pays for pays for things in the firehouse like coffee and sugar and ketchup and that sort of thing. Um, and so these guys sent uh, from a, one of the firehouses in New York City, the FDNY, uh, sent my unit a box full of t-shirts. And this is not these are not cheap. I mean, these things retail for like twenty dollars a piece, and uh, they're not cheap to make either. And uh, you know, I. I I took that T-shirt, and I, you know, as a firefighter, that's a that's a gesture. You give somebody something like that for free, it means a lot. And I I had mine uh, in my uh, in my rucksack, and it, I took it with me throughout Iraq. It went all over the place, Baghdad, and so oh, on. Wow, that's cool. And uh, uh, I decided to return the favor, and um, I had a the army. How we identify a unit is called a guide on. It's like a it's a flag with kind of like a, a forked end um that each unit has that, that identifies who they are and what they're what they do so there's medical infantry special forces and so on military police all that um so i had one made in you know for these guys and uh i brought it back you know i uh right after i got back from katrina this is like uh october 2005 ish um i went back to new york city went down to the trade center site and uh, it was still, it was a hole in the ground at the time. They hadn't done any of the construction that you see now that the, you know, the, the Freedom Tower did not exist. The pools were not, none of that was there. Um, and uh, got to see there, there was a makeshift memorial with a lot of military patches and fire department, police department patches and all that. And the, uh, the Port Authority police officer let me in and uh, gave me the American flag that was flying on the pole that day. So in, in my home, it'll, it'll always have a place of prominence in my home is, uh, uh, an American flag that flew over the world trade center. Wow. And, uh, so I went to the firehouse. Now this, this is ladder 20 or 20 truck as they call it. Um, and they were one of the first ones there on nine 11. Uh, there were seven members of the company on the rig that day and all of them lost their lives in the North tower as did, most of the other uh, firehouses in the area, Lower Manhattan, uh, and in like parts of parts of Brooklyn that are near the near the bridges, um, those those fire companies were the first ones there. They went straight in, and those are the the heaviest casualties are from those units. And uh, so I went to the firehouse, met these guys, and uh, you know I've I've known them ever since. That was 15 years ago, and some of these guys are my best friends. And uh, I had to tell that story tonight to give them the shout out that they deserve and also to stop and uh, and remember the, the 343 firefighters that were lost that day. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. That's um, it sounds pretty special that you're able to do that. And um... and I've yeah, and over the over the last 15 years, I've gotten to know a lot of these, uh, not just from Ladder 20, but the the other firehouses in the area. I've gotten to know the guys uh, that are, that are there now. And, uh, you know, 15 years later, there's a lot of younger guys, guys that just came on in the last couple of years. And they were, they were children on nine 11, you know, they, they, they were in school just like, just like you were, and now they're doing the job. And, um, you know, every, every year, no matter what it's, uh, on, on nine 11, there, there is an observance in the firehouse. There is a, it's a memorial service. Um, to, to commemorate the occasion. And then there's a, uh, and then there's usually a mass at the church around the corner and uh, there's other activities that take place during that, during that time. 
and uh, it's it's become an annual thing. And un- unfortunately, due to uh, due to COVID, uh, it's been severely curtailed this year. It's uh, first first year that I can remember that I'm I'm not going to be able to go back for it. Yeah, that's, um, that's sad that you're able to. I mean, talk about COVID impacting everything, including yeah. that. You know, um, it's it really has. Talk about a bummer. Uh, yeah. I remember the first I went to to not the nine eleven memorial, um, and to to actually see there and to to take those images I had and all that studying I've done on it and seeing that and seeing those names uh, scribed uh, on the uh, at the memorial, um, you know, and trying to bring that into an emergency management perspective. Um, the FBI yeah. director Christopher Ray said this at the memorial. He said. There is no better reminder than this place of the of the importance of the work we do, both how we approach the work and the stakes of that work. Um, speaking from specifically an emergency management perspective, I, I believe that that statement applies very well to emergency management. So much has changed in emergency management because of nine eleven. Um, you know, so from your perspective, you know, why was nine eleven such a catalyst for everything? I mean. You and I know that, but for our listeners, especially those who think they're, you know, think thinking about getting an emergency management, what is it? It changed the it changed the perspective of uh, of everything involving emergency management completely. I mean, uh, think about it. Our our professors, even even our professors in, in Georgetown, and uh, the emergency managers that have been on the job since before we got into this business, they their their education is in everything else except for emergency management. The degree field didn't exist in 2001. It, it, you know, it, it's only starting to become uh, a, 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 um, an accepted field now, you know, uh, doing no small part. And I have to give this shout out to, to Georgetown University, which has a reputation um, of being a pedigree institution that took this on. There, there are others. The, the Harvard Kennedy School has has uh, dis- the seminars in disaster management now. Um, but before that, uh, the only way to get any sort of emergency management training was to go through FEMA or go volunteer at your local firehouse. It, it was no such thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of people trying to learn. And I have f- furthered my education as much as possible. Those FEMA courses, uh, they're basic. I mean, they really are. They're basic. And... Um, I think the fact that Georgetown took it on and saw this as a, as a growing field and, um, you know, let's be honest before 2001, uh, and really before 2004, 2010, even emergency management was retired fire and police who brought in police perspectives. And now we have in many ways, it still is. Look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you're, you're, you've added the tools of, of research and data. Right, you don't just go in there that's as yeah. you. you uh, there's no discredit to fire and police because what they do is great. But if you're in if you're in police, you're going to come in and you're going to talk about safety and security. And if you're a uh, fire fire background, you're going to be talking about fire and evacuations. Now right. it's like, yep. oh, let's talk about this. And that's that's absolutely not how it works. If if you're if if you're an emergency manager. It's all hazards all the time. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it could be it could be a cyber a cyber threat. Um, it could be it could be an earthquake. If if your if your organization gets hit by a cyber by a by a, uh, a a malware attack or a ransomware attack. What I say, if you are in fire, if you're in police, bring that knowledge with you. 
but be open to learning more about the field in a, in a comprehensive manner. And so. Oh, absolutely. It, it, yeah. It, it, you, for, for those who are thinking about getting into the business, it's uh, you, you've, you've got to remember, you've got to, you've got to remember that whatever, whatever experience you had before, you're going to always be learning when you, when you get, when you're trying to get into emergency management. And one of the other things I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, you know, we, we, uh, we talk about cat 9-11 being a catalyst for change in emergency management. The, the biggest uh, change that occurred in emergency management after 9-11 was the fundamentals themselves. Uh, prior to 9-11, we used incident command uh, systems in the, in the fire service that had been developed uh, out here in California through the fire scope program back in the seventies, which was designed as a mitigant for wildfires, right? Cause California, as we know, has large wildfires. Um, and that's they they developed the incident command system back in the 70s and it really remained unchanged even at the federal level right up through 9-11 and then we realized hey we need a national response framework hey we need a national incident management system there was no such thing as is 100 or 200 in 2001 it didn't exist the only way you were ever going to get incident command training is if you joined a fire department even as a paramedic as an emt I didn't learn that thing. I didn't learn that that system on the job as an EMT. I learned it as a firefighter. The police, the police departments at the time did not get involved in that stuff at all. Yeah. And now it's standard. Now, now it's standard across the board. Right. Yeah. The um, man, I have so much, so many thoughts on like ICS. Really what it comes down to is it's great for understanding how to manage incidents as in people and resources and how to get delegate that appropriately. Um, and so, like, uh, I would say if you're going to talk about cha- huge changes uh, in emergency management, 9-11, which created the Department of Homeland Security, and yep. uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, you yep. know, Pekemra changed everything. It's why I had a job in the federal government, because Pekemra created the national strike teams. And uh, it's now law that we have to have these strike teams. And... Hence, I came around and, you know, I had a job there. So uh, it really does change everything. And I think in the next 10, 20 years, emergency management will probably become more and more involved in response. I, I've said this before in the podcast, there's several, uh, you know, local agencies and even uh, federal agencies who require emergency managers to carry a weapon, which 10 years ago, I would have never thought in a million years would have even been like, why? Um but now that protection is part of, you know, you know, that uh, the disaster life cycle and people learning more and more about disasters, they look towards emergency managers. Okay, you have this comprehensive understanding. Why don't you deal with response? And so I just see it becoming more and more uh, involved in response. In some ways, we should push the off on that. Um, but uh, other ways, I think it's a good thing as um, we figure out how to help people out. So uh, that long spiel aside, talking about your career experiences, and now we've already hit on some of this, uh, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Um, you know, if you're going to go back and you're going to be thinking about, um, you know, uh, both like, you know, how do I even say this? Um, between the between the Pentagon presentation we had at Georgetown where we talked about 9-11 
Pentagon being hit. Sure. And the for uh, for those who don't know, um, the UK has uh, what they call the Fire Service College, where they train uh, a, a lot of their fire service members. And um, it's a big campus that we went to and did um, USAR training, a little you know mock USAR training, and uh, we heard a ton of presentations there. Um, but after going overseas and and dealing that with that, uh, even as the as the army, and then getting that education from Georgetown overseas, yep. uh, what are some things that we could implement here that they're doing? And what are some things that you, if we actually have, this is really random. You didn't know this. We have a ton of listeners now in Belgium and Germany. So really? yeah, super random. Hey guys. Thanks. Also Australia started popping up on the map. Thanks Australia. Uh, for those international folks, what can we provide them? What would be great? What's great about uh, how we we operate in emergency services? So, if so, what I always preach is um, remember the basics and the fundamentals. Now, um, so when we talk about the UK specifically, in most of Europe, they use the gold, silver, bronze uh, method. All it is is a is a um, a, a method of layering the response to incidents, meaning that if, uh, for, for a relatively small incident, they set up a bronze command and for escalation, they use silver and gold, obviously. Right. Um, so basically what you would, you know, the, the, the seven, seven, uh, 2005 bombings in London, they, they was, I believe probably the last time they set up gold command. Uh, I can't, I'm not a hundred percent if there's been something since then that would have caused that question. Um, yeah, that's a good way. So we, we have the same thing here. You know, one, one of the things that people don't realize, unless you're taking like ICS 300, 400, is that when we have a large incident here, um, we start with our, you know, our basic incident command system, and then it expands to the multi-agency coordination system. Yeah. And then it can it can grow beyond that. Things like concepts like area commands, and then you end up with a, a national level event like Katrina, not that we did it well, all right. We we uh, we sucked we, at Katrina. We, <laughs> we marginally disrupted the process of nature in New Orleans. Uh. Um, but we, you know, what is one thing I could say about the the response to to Hurricane Katrina is that um, we did what we had to do in spite of the conditions. All right, and uh tragic that so many people lost their lives great many were needless um yeah but the people that we could save we did and the people that were left stranded there we took care of yeah right no one no one was abandoned in new orleans once we got there that i can tell you that that's the key uh, though no. right once once you got there because uh i i think the, the lessons learned for katrina are infinite Infinite. Yeah, I say immeasurable. Yeah, yeah. I, I say it sucked because the the biggest problem with we, we you just mentioned ICS three hundred four hundred. For those who don't know, that's a unified command and a, a unity of command and dealing with multiple agencies. The number one problem with Katrina, in my perspective, was the coordination between agencies, and the new t the the number two problem was the tempo of FEMA. Outside of that, once you had responders go in there and start saving people and uh, pulling people out of the mud. I mean, those guys, uh, you know, everybody involved in that process really saved that. It could have been even worse, you know? Absolutely. Yep. And I, I've, I've, I've said this many times, the, uh, you know, Katrina is a good example of something to learn from 
because, uh, you know, and I know I realize we have listeners and I believe even you yourself have responded to other hurricanes since then. We've had we've had Michael that hit Florida. We had uh, obviously we had Maria and uh, and Sandy. We had uh, and then we had Harvey that hit Houston. Um, Katrina and these other storms that I mentioned, these are these are storms that were going to be catastrophic no matter what. Uh, the, the damage, for, forget the levees flooding or the levees uh, uh, breaking, forget the political discord that went on in New Orleans at the time with Mayor Nagin and the governor and all those guys. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was going to be bad no matter how we did it, right? So we got in there. That's, that, is, uh, that is something that, uh, uh, it, it's something that our, our good friend, Mr. Fugate preaches that I happen to, I happen to be a, uh, I happen to be a Craig Fugate disciple. Um, get in there and save lives. That, that's, that's the bottom line is, you know, what's the difference between here and the UK and for our listeners that are, uh, uh, that are, that are contemplating the differences between the two. Get in there and save lives. That's all it is. Take care of people, and that's something you learn. In the, that's something you learn in the military. The second you get promoted to sergeant, you become a non-commissioned officer. They give you a group of people, and they tell you you are now responsible for everything about these soldiers, their lives, where they live, where they sleep, what they eat, when they go to the bathroom, where they shower. It's all got to come from you, and that's and that's basically what it is as an emergency manager. You've got to provide for people that have everything stripped away from them. Man, hundred percent. You would think that, you know, I'm, you know, you're listening to that maybe and you're like, uh, you know, shower really? Yes. You have to think about how people and when people and how long people can shower when water is scarce and bringing in clean water, uh, setting up camps, you know, the FEMA camps that people talk about is BS. First of all, second of all, and Hurricane Harvey, when we set up camps, you know who stayed in those camps? FEMA personnel. FEMA personnel stay in the camps and, you know, other people stayed in hotels. We wanted the people impacted by disasters to stay in hotels while we slept out in tents. All those logistics have to be thought about as well, not just for the survivor, but for the responder. And now that we're dealing with COVID, you know, I, I believe I saw a report the other day, it was on the news, 11 of 33 uh, prisoner crews who uh, train for wildfire fighting program and they can opt into it. And, um, you know, but 11 of those teams are quarantined d- due to COVID outbreaks. And so you have to think yeah. about those constraints, uh, you know, literally everything. Yeah, one of the things that I want to, uh, want to make sure I communicate to the, to the people from overseas that might be listening to this that are, uh, like they said, that are contemplating the differences between how we do it here in the States and how they do it over, uh, elsewhere in the world. The, the bottom line is, is there's, there's, there really is no right or wrong way to do this. As long as you have a program, as long as you have a framework that allows you to save lives and restore people uh, to, their, to, 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 their, to their former lives, to allow them to build back better, as long as you can accomplish those things, you're doing it right. Let's talk about, yeah. you, you were military. You were military, then you were, you know, fire and paramedic, whatever. Uh, making the switch. What was making the switch like for you, and what would be some advice that you'd give? So... For the the fire, EMS, and U.S. Army, uh, those all, all three of those things were simultaneous. Um, and one of the things that I can tell, particularly for the fire, EMS, and and military folks that are that are looking to get into emergency management, is experience is everything. 
a, a degree from a school uh, is only going to get you so far. It's, it's, it might, it might help you out uh, getting your application looked at, but when you get onto the job and you start actually doing emergency planning, emergency management, response mitigation, that's that recovery, that type of stuff. Um, it, it's, they're going to look so much harder at where you've been and what you've done. Um, just to give you a frame of reference, when I, when I, uh, when we started, when you and I started Georgetown in 2015, uh, I already had 18 years of doing full-time, uh, fire EMS and U S army, right? I had done all that stuff prior to going to graduate school for this field. Um, and so my, my advice to the, to the people that are listening to this is take advantage of that experience, get as much experience as you can soak up all the overtime that you can, because every extra shift you work every, every day that you're on the job, you are gaining the experience that you're going to need to continue this forward because, and I'm, I'm, I am absolutely living proof that you can't do this forever. Uh, these, these jobs that I, that I spent this time doing are dangerous. They're a young man's game. Sooner or later, you are going to get hurt or you're going to get sick doing this. Uh, and you can't be out crawling into people's houses and, uh, uh, you know, uh, kicking in doors uh, and, and pulling people out of crashed cars. You can't do that forever. Um, and emergency management is a perfect way to continue serving people. Do you remember Ashley Loria? Absolutely. And I've listened to that episode. I actually shout out. <laughs> and and Jack too. I, I I listened to Jack's episode too. <laughs> oh, that speaking of which, there's a, there's another thing, another shout out I forgot to give our uh, our fellow cohort, uh, our fellow alum, uh, Dave Ritchie, uh, is a member of the New York City Fire Department uh, Pipes and Drums, the bagpipe band, uh, playing uh, at at uh, the World Trade Center site, which they do every September 11th, and. Uh, it, I, I keep it, I keep in touch with him and I, I, you know, quite a few other people from, from the, from the class. Uh, he's a, he's a Lieutenant in the New York city fire department. Now he's in, uh, he works in the Bronx. No, he's in upper Manhattan now. And Sandy Moffat, he was at the Pentagon. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, he's a member of the, he was, a, he was there as a firefighter. He's a member of the Prince George County fire department. And, uh, he, he responded in with his, with his, he responded in with his engine company, uh, to the Pentagon that day. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He's better. You should have got him on. <laughs> yeah, shoot. I'm going to have to scrub this. Uh, no, that's hilarious. I haven't kept up with him at all. So, yeah, his doc just went up in my book. That's cool. Uh, I think Ashley said this on the actual episode. I, I have to go back and review it. But she said the same thing. You have to have experience. And my advice on that episode is the same on this one. There's a lot of people who uh, feel like they can't be a responder because they don't have the physical or whatever to um, there's so many volunteer organizations even that yeah. uh, could use help. Uh, you know? Um, yeah. That's, that's hundred percent right there. Right. I, I did my internship uh, when I was in my undergrad at the red cross for, I, I worked in disaster services for a year at the red cross and ended up being the interim chair of uh, you know, uh, disaster services for two thirds of the state of Utah uh, wildfires, mudslides, you know, rainstorms, the whole deal. And man, to talk about being in my undergrad, you know, 10, 15 years ago and having, uh, just, uh, just a wealth of experience there, just working with different, uh, nonprofits and even, uh, first responders and, 
uh, learning how those systems work and, and being out there. I'm so glad my professors pushed me towards that. And then at Georgetown, I forget to which professor it was, um, but he, when I asked for about career advice and how to, you know, get where I want to go in my career at the time, um, he said up or out every two years. For the first 10 years in your career, go up or out in emergency management. And um, I tried to stick to that and, it, you know, it paid off dividends uh, for me in terms of getting all these different types of experience and, yeah, the, the overtime, the, the extra work that goes in, I mean, that's huge. Um, so, Mike, before we get you off of here, um, we finish, of course, every episode with rapid fire uh, where we just ask you a couple fun fun questions, important questions, stupid questions, whatever. And so right. with both of us going to Georgetown, you mentioned Jack's episode. You mentioned Ashley's episode. Uh, she failed to, to answer this question, so I call her out on that. Um, what was your, who was your favorite, uh, Georgetown professor? All right. So I have to, I have to play, I have to keep the political. Oh cue my even, gosh, right? just like some of these people might be listening to that. Oh my gosh. So, um, I can, I can tell you this, I am still in touch with, uh, Nancy Susky. Uh, she is out here in, uh, in Livermore. She works for the Livermore national lab. Um, and, uh, I, I've, uh, I've actually, uh, collaborated with her on a, on a couple of occasions and, uh, I got to, uh, they hosted a delegation from a friendly foreign government, uh, you know, a cohort of emergency managers that are undergoing education in their home country. And uh, uh, between Georgetown and the lab, they hosted them here in San Francisco and I uh, got to participate. It was an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm also in, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in semi kind of regular contact with Jeff Stern, who, uh, as we know, is now... Uh, He's recently been appointed the director of the Emergency Management Institute at Emmitsburg. So uh, big shout out to him. Congratulations on that. He, he was uh, previously the state director for uh, Virginia DEM. Hold on. I got something for that. Yeah. Oh, we got cheering. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. That's so dumb. Yeah, yeah seriously, congratulations, uh, Justin. And, uh, I, I, I'm in touch with, uh, let's see, I haven't heard from Randy Griffin in a while. Um, I think he's back in, he's back in fire service. Uh, I think he's a chief. Yeah. He's a fire chief in upstate New York. I think like Syracuse area. That yeah, area. That sounds about right. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I man, Nancy Susky was the first person I talked to Georgetown and I was already excited about the program and, and what could it offer and talking to her and her thoughts on it man, talk about someone super cool and highly oh, yeah. intelligent. I, I kept up with her a little bit too. I haven't talked to her too much, but uh, maybe you can, uh, or we can uh, reach out to her and say, Hey, we mentioned you on this podcast and, uh, we wish her well. Um, okay. So, uh, this is a really uh, interesting question for me. It's curious, uh, because, uh, just watching trends and how fire service has been changing. Do you believe that all firefighters should be paramedics? All right. So the answer to that is kind of like twofold. The, so the short answer is no, right. But there's a very good reason for that. The, the, the better question would be framed as, do I believe that all firefighters or first responders should be medically trained? And the answer is absolutely, at least at the basic life support or EMT basic level. Uh, reason for that is that uh, regardless of where you're a firefighter these days, uh, emergency medical calls are a major component of the total work. You know, we, we were talking uh, earlier about, uh, uh, you know, actual fires where you have to put put a mask on and crawl into a house and put the fire out, maybe save people, who knows. 
Uh, that's about 1% of the actual work. Uh, emergency medical services where people are having strokes, chest pain, they fell out of bed, they, uh, you know, they, they broke their ankle playing soccer. That's about 85% of the cost is, is for medicine. Right. So to be trained at the that the basic life support level is as an absolute must for any first responder. Um, but the paramedic level is another story. And I'll tell you why. Uh, when you're when you're a paramedic. Uh, so to, to become a paramedic, we're talking about um, year years of education. Now, it's, a, it's about a year and a half to two years of university level education. It's about 2000 hours of education to become a paramedic. And then you have to uh, precept, you have to get your state license. There's a lot of hoops to jump through just to get certified. And if you go through it just for the sake of going through it and you never use your skills, those skills are, are, are very much perishable. And if you're not doing it every day, uh, you run the risk of becoming harmful. Because as a paramedic, uh, you, you absolutely have uh, medicines and other other tools in your kit that could harm somebody if you're not if you don't do it correctly. Uh, whereas with an EMT basic, uh, they focus more on stabilizing and assessing the patient, and there's generally not a whole lot of needles or tubes or drugs in the in the in the kits that they carry. So no, it's I, I like how you said they should all be medically trained. I I did uh, some research on that. Um, several years ago, I think in my undergrad and yeah, like basically the fire service has been fantastic at putting out fires and potential fires. And so it's becoming more and more medically based. And so, right. The, 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 the number of, the number of fires, and this is a, you know, we could have a whole nother episode on this. Uh, the, the number of fires that we respond to is at historic lows. It's uh, you know, the, the, the prevention work that we've done, uh, and, and the, the improvements to electrical and building codes and, and all this other stuff, you know, the, the safety features that come standard on vehicles now, uh, it, it's really reduced that aspect of the work. But um, the number of people that experience medical emergencies on a daily basis has skyrocketed since I started doing this. And we're going on more medical calls than you could ever hope for. Um, man, talk about getting away from rapid fire. But uh... I'm interviewing somebody <laughs> next week who's um, an expert in earthquakes. And okay. uh, I, I've always said, and I'm going to confirm this with her, that the number one w thing that you can do to reduce earthquakes or the impact of earthquakes is building code. It's the same thing with fires. Like the number one thing that you can do is just changing how things are built and, and the electronics and, you know, houses in Arizona now uh, by code, they're required to have sprinklers on top of the, the house. Like, could you imagine if that was happening in California? Well, I, as far as, as far as avoiding earthquakes, I can, I have to say, I completely disagree. And I know you're going to have this, this expert on and she's going to tell you everything. Right. Uh, but the, the, the best way to avoid an earthquake is to not live in California. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, we can laugh on that one again. Cheering. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's hilarious. Okay, yeah. The number one way to avoid a problem is not to be in the problem. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to change this up a little bit. How many cats have sure. you saved from trees? Exactly zero. Uh, that's but what I figured. I also, Why do we always have this cats and trees? I can also tell you this. I've never I've never found a cat skeleton in a tree. <laughs> yeah, why? Why? Another episode, maybe. But you always see that. You always see the picture of cats and trees, and I'm like, 
first of all, I hate cats. My wife's going to be like, we have, we have a cat. I had to promise my wife a cat to be able to get to get her to move to California. It's another story, but, uh, I'm like, yeah, you don't see cat skeletons in trees. That's not the problem. That's hilarious. Okay. Whatever you do, don't cut the tree down because there's these, there's these videos out there. Somebody cut a tree down to get the cat out and it killed the tree, tree at the house. Or kill the cat. Oh. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. What a stupid idea. It wasn't a, it's, not a, it's not a firefighter video. That's just somebody who was trying to get their cat out of the tree and they cut the tree down and it hit the house. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those Russian videos that like, I see on Instagram where it's like, Oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Um, Okay, so important question here. If you're going to help uh, emergency managers of the future, what is one piece of advice that you'd give? Uh, experience and education. Get get the experience. So, you know, we talked we talked about this. It doesn't have to be fire or EMS or the military. There's a million ways to serve. If you're committed to su- serving your fellow uh, human beings, then that's all that that should be all the motivation you need. Just build up as much education and be a sponge. Always be learning. There's a million, you know, it, even if you're not actively going to like a formal university uh, education uh, track for emergency management, there's a million other ways to get education. Uh, the FEMA Independent Study website, there's a there's a ton of uh, resources on there. Um, there's, I, I, I can't even list the number of different avenues there are to get the education that you need to be able to do this. Exactly, 100% right. Uh, I'm going to do this one more time because I agree with that. Uh, I love these buttons, man. I got to, there's other buttons. Like that's a stupid button. No, that's a good one. Oh, that's, that's for the bad. That's for the, that's for the dad joke, right? Uh, dad, I'm learning dad jokes being a dad myself. Um, but I, I found that I've become pretty numb to dad jokes unless it's about mathematics and I become number. Ah, yeah. There you go. All right, and the last question, most question, uh, important question of the podcast: What is the number one podcast for emergency managers? The Disaster Tough Podcast. Totally agree, <laughs> Mike. Thanks again for coming out of the show. You're awesome. You have tons of experience. We're definitely going to have you come back on. Uh, so many, so many th- avenues that we could still dive down with uh, your military experience to, to being a firefighter, paramedic, and now as an emergency manager here in the state of California, where I live. So I'm grateful that you're, I'm grateful that you're here, that you're able to help us out. Uh, again, thank you f- so much for coming on the show. I just wanted to thank you for uh, giving me the honor of, uh, of coming on here and uh, telling, telling a couple stories. Uh, it, it is my sincere hope that it, uh, that it helps people that are looking to get into the business. And also uh, thank you for allowing me to take a moment and honor uh, our fallen brothers and sisters. Uh, everybody, if you want to listen to Mike's, uh, podcast episode, or you want to follow us, uh, us on Instagram, we have an Instagram account, disaster tough podcast, where we'll, we'll have, uh, Mike's information on there. You can comment there if you'd like, uh, you can also like most of what people are doing and we're grateful for that. You can send us an email at info at dobermanemg.com, where you can ask us a question. You have a comment about what Mike said again, that's info at dobermanemg.com. <laughs>